Are you ready to scale? Why not invest three minutes in our scalability index? It's quick, it's easy, and it's got specific guidance. Find it at evokinggenius.com slash scale. Welcome back to Genius at Scale. Today's guest is Hollis Carter of Baby Bathwater. Hollis, tell us a little bit about yourself, especially the name Baby Bathwater. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for having me. I would say, you know, the name Baby Bathwater, just to get that out there, came from the saying, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And that was a saying that my now co-founder and I use all the time to describe business workshops, events, seminars, all of those things, when we both had separate companies. And for about a decade, we found ourselves going to the same shows and things like that. And be like, how was it? And I'd be like, no, there was some baby, but there was some bathwater. And that was <laughs> our way of kind of like the good and the bad, but also that they're like inevitable. It's not like you can't have one without the other a little bit. Do you know the history of the, of that saying? Yeah, it's funny. We once it became a thing, you know, I had to go dig into it a little more and look at. I found like that old German like plank that had the inscription of people bathing the same kids in the tub and the water being so dirty and all that kind of stuff. Um, it would start with the farmer, and they got in first, and then the farmer's wife, and then kids in age. And by the time the ba the last baby was there, the the and you got a bath usually once a year, and that was it. Yeah, they they'd end up accidentally throwing the baby out with bathwater. <laughs> yeah, so that kind of became just like a funny saying. And, and to be honest, like we never intended for this thing to scale and turn into what it is. So the funny name was more an origin story name that just sort of stuck and then happened to conveniently fit for kind of a lot of stuff we stand for of, you know, you can't have, uh, you know, just black and white anything. And I didn't want it to be the 20X Vision Summit or something like very straightforward. So yeah, so myself, I grew up in Georgia. I live in Colorado now. I'm here in Boulder at our office. And, you know, school was never quite my jam. I was dyslexic and a bunch of other D words that had to do with different dysfunctions in the learning kind of atmosphere. And I think it was until about third grade, I pretty much was like, oh, I'm, life is going to be hard. School is hard. All those things were sort of mounting. And then my dad had a meeting with the school that basically talked about, hey, he's dyslexic and this is the stuff we're going to do. Like this is pre people having computers in their house. Right. I'm just young, old enough, however you look at it, to be at that time and I got like a laptop from the county that could do dragon dictate so that I could start keeping up in school and I got a calculator when other kids couldn't have calculators so these things happened that helped me like adapt in school which was cool and I kind of learned to lean away from strengths and or lean into strengths and away from my weaknesses but the big thing was like hey this is going to be tough you just need to get through it you're not going to fit in this like kind of corporate ladder building system and so I actually remember I got a lawnmower and a Jay Abraham book of letters that were written to roofing companies, trying to get people to sign up for roofing gigs. And I oddly got into taking those and turning those into, I will blow the leaves off your driveway and edge the weeds on your driveway if, uh, for free if you give me a shot at mowing your yard and put it on subscription. And this was like prior to me being able to drive. And I built like a pretty substantial subscription business of these things, which pivoted 
my confidence. I got really into sales. Like I love the rush of knocking on a door to like make a sale. And then inversely, once it started to scale, my dad would be like, well, now you got to knock on the door and collect that check for that guy who's ignoring the thing. And those, I, I remember the feelings of learning all that being like a child. Like chasing down a deadbeat neighbor. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, I, I was excited to sell and I hated doing the ones where the guy, who, it was always the richest guy who wouldn't pay either. Yeah. Or they say you didn't do a good job. You go, yeah, don't tell me that. Yeah. When you're three months late, don't tell me that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that kind of evolved. I ended up doing just tons of entrepreneurial stuff as a child all the way to like the night I graduated high school and me and my friend drove to Aspen and I didn't realize I probably should have sold that landscaping business for something more than just give it to a kid. Cause now I know businesses are worth something, but you know, we, we drove to Aspen, the most expensive place pretty much in the United States and camped out there and just started working and doing stuff there and fell in love with Colorado and kind of made my home out here. And that's when I got really into skiing. I was like kind of into the outdoor stuff. I, I river guided on the weekends and did things like that. But then I realized I didn't want to do that for work. I wanted to do it for fun. And so I started studying the internet marketing um, stuff back in the early 2000s. I think it was about 2007 when I found a really good groove with that. And that was really more for location freedom, running something super lean. I wasn't doing anything where I had to go anywhere. But I learned like copywriting, marketing, learned how to manage a programming team. I learned how to run affiliates, email lists, like the laundry list of skills I didn't realize I was learning as I was just trying to figure out how to pay to be like a bougie ski bum and work in the mornings and the evenings was, was really cool to watch all that compound. In hindsight now, that was a very important time because those skills were more founder CEO type skills than a lot of the stuff I had done before. You know, don't take this too long because I am this ADD entrepreneur. I had a lot of different businesses that were created, but I wouldn't call them businesses. I would call them cash flow machines. I built lots of really interesting kind of cash flow machines that taught me those skills, but eventually figured out, okay, product, market fit, build a team. That stuff came together when I realized I was calling myself a business owner, but I still had to like show up and get the affiliates to do the thing and manage the email. I wasn't running an actual company. Yep. Then we created some really good like stuff in the information space, kind of learned that, but then learned what we didn't know. And, you know, I think one launch I did like almost 2.5 million in sales, but I lost $250,000 because I didn't know how to do the taxes and the payouts and the refund calculations and all the stuff. And, you know, long story short, learned a bunch of things through hard knocks and trial and less through getting mentors and going to workshops and probably could have cut my learning curve a bit. Finally kind of found our best group. We had a software company. It was essentially like Groupon, but for people who wanted to create their own daily deal site in different niche markets, built that up, sold it, and then took a little hiatus for a while, invested in a ski resort, worked with a bunch of people who had books I liked and did some deals on Amazon and Kindle and stuff like that. Which all long story short led to starting Baby Bathwater because all the education I got, education and connections, I would say, was from hanging out in the lobby of conferences I was paying to go to, but I couldn't sit through the PowerPoint presentation. And I always like felt like I was cheating the system where I would sit in the lobby and buy a drink for, you know, whoever the person who was paid to be there to talk, we'd get to hang out for hours and he'd end up sending me some connections or helping me out and I was like, wait, why am I sitting taking notes when they're just trying to sell me something? The real value is in like 
the tested people's experiences, sharing their stories and, and helping me there. So something about that stuck with me for a very long time because of just the, the power that it had. And so that was always a, a big part of me. I like learning from people who are ahead of me in the game and could share me a story, not a PowerPoint because they had a book or a course to sell me or something like that. Sure. Sure. So what, what exactly is baby bathwater? You never got to that part. Oh yeah. So essentially we started as an event business. So, you know, two events a year, I was inviting other founders who are in the grow and scale scale stage. And like, we're probably really good at whatever got them started. And now we're all trying to figure out this issues with scale. And we were hosting events where we would have roundtables and talks and networking, but very, very curated. I tried to have the right amount of people from different industries and, you know, different geographic areas. But the main thing is they're in that same position in business where they've been in the rodeo long enough and they know kind of what they're up against. They know what they know, they know what they don't know. And I didn't want to deal with like the BS of a typical event. I quickly learned that I didn't want to be in the event business. Sometimes they made money, sometimes they lost money. They were always kind of stressful from an operations perspective, but I enjoyed the creative side of it. Now it is a community organization where we have a membership and the events are part of that. So, you know, call it the high seven to nine figure entrepreneur. I find revenue to be funny dictator because it depends on what industry you're in and things like that. But the actual founder who has worn a million hats, now they're basically just, you know, people process vision and then all the life stuff that comes with it. And they get together, we throw a really good time so that they're not feeling like they wasted their time away from their family and their friends. You know, they came back recharged and learning a lot and, and meeting people. And so we have both virtual and live things that uh, we do to support that group. But it's kind of the community of people I want to grow old with. You know, we've had plenty of people get married, meeting in the group and become business partners and move because of it. But I think the biggest difference from other quote unquote, like mastermind groups and things like that is we are not as the founders, like the teachers, like this is my seven step system. It's definitely more community exchange oriented. So did that, did that get birthed out of the, if you will, the lack of community as a kid, because you weren't part of the school or you were on the outer fringe of the, the community in school? No, I think more from the fringe of the, when I was growing my first few businesses post school, like the, the way I got through school was actually being pretty good at networking. Like, I mean, I remember for German class, which I would never would have passed. I mowed a girl's lawn in exchange. She let me copy her paper. Like I got good at navigating the periphery. And it was the same when I went into the business world, I would get, I couldn't sit and go through a workbook that I knew I'd have to go home and relay it to a, someone on my team and do all of that. But I could sit and talk to a guy who's done it and get like the 10 minute story version versus the prescriptive version. And then be like, Hey, can you just tell me who you hired to do that? And can I get his number and a referral or whatever. Sure. And so I think it was more a response to the reason I went to so many events when growing those cash flow businesses in my first few companies, it was like, we called it LobbyCon. Like, thank God the talks are over. Now I'm going to get to really dive in and have some conversations in the lobby. Yeah. Yeah, it's, that's, that's my number one rule that's kind of a secret is go to the conference and set up a private dinner with the 12 people you want to meet and and skip the skip the bar and take the take the 10 or 12 people that you're most fascinated with. They'll thank you. 
Yeah. And you walk away getting to know those 10 instead of trying to meet 2,500 people in a, in an auditorium. You're not going to do that. No. It's an impossible feat and it's socially exhausting and all it that. It's socially exhausting. And you come home with 25 cards and you go, was this the guy with the chihuahua or was this the guy that does kids parties and does balloonology? You know, I, I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. My goal was always like meet one person who I could see staying in touch with and, you know, having some value for. And then somehow me and, and my co-founder now of this, like we always ended up putting the, Hey, we're all going here after or putting those things together impromptu. Like we put a, a skeleton together and then it's like, Hey, you go collect five or six cool people today. I'll collect five or six cool people today. We'll all meet at, you know, 10 o'clock at this place. After you do your dinner, I do mine or whatever. And it would always be valuable. And then we'd end up, you know, skipping the talks. So yeah, that was sort of the point of our thing was like, we never wanted you to feel like you had to go to the talks. We have talks because it's important to drive a through line of conversation. But since we know the audience, we kind of got rid of the speaker professional, like I fly in, I talk, I leave the room. There are panels where we know who's coming. Like, hey, these three guys did the same thing. Say it's Facebook ad buying or hiring. They've all done it well in a different way. We're gonna have a panel for this. It's gonna be a conversation versus a, a one-to-one. And then sometimes they'll, they'll go for their 90 minute allotment. And sometimes I'll have to like get them to get up because they're just, they won't stop interacting and talking about like, just carry this through the next three days. You can go have that conversation on a boat or over dinner or whatever. And it just infuses it versus forces it in a guru to student mentality. So it begs the question, how do you measure or define scale in building baby bathwater? Man, you're catching me right in like the deepest depths of figuring that out. I got to tell you, it wasn't a trick question. It's not a mean question. <laughs> I thought, oh, gosh, how would you, how would you measure scale if it's, if it's, yeah, if it's like uh, spirit based, it almost feels like spirit, but like if we have a good time, that's a great conference. Yeah. So that is how it started. Like I didn't intend for it to be a business. There was no plan. There was no, you know, yep. Google sheet shared with people of timelines and a roadmap. There was none of this for the first three years. You know, both of us had built some businesses, so we didn't need it for cash flow. We wanted it for the relationships. Sure. And I had this really cool place I wanted to bring people and get these conversations going. And I thought it was going to be to start something else because of a conversation I had. I didn't realize we'd keep doing this. Right. Now, we're like a decade in, and I have a, a young 18-month-old and another one on the way in two months and I've got 200 plus members and a team of, you know, call it 10, if you include some like vendors. And it's like, it's become a real thing. If I were to stop doing it, it would actually have uh, an impact on people before it'd be like, Oh, there's no party this year. Now it's like actually something to both the people who work here and the people who use it. But for us, scale was very important that it wasn't about us. So every day, we're trying to look at the decisions we make based on what else is out there. Usually seems to be limited by one person who's like the teacher, guru, whatever, whether it's, you know, there's always a figurehead. So we're trying to build it around a, a brand and a set of like core principles versus an, an individual. Cause an individual, sure. For, for me and for my co-founder success is that we will eventually get to attend and be members of this group with no day-to-day -day use 
as people running the business. In order to do that, we are now running like an organization. You know, we've installed EOS into our company. I'm literally sitting here with my notebook, like future org chart, you know, due for meeting. Like I'm doing that kind of stuff before it was like, who's the music, who's the speaker, who's the this, who's the that, what's the food going to be like, what cool people in different industries should I go travel and meet? And I still get to do all that, but more by choice, there's, there's teams being built to operate it. Sure. For us now, it's probably doubling in size over the next two years in a membership so that we can have the budget to then install some people who love scaling. For us, it's easy to provide a really good product. When I remember one thing is like, I am my target audience. So like, I know I have an event next week and I have this guy who's built a $2 billion real estate portfolio and all these other things off the back of a successful, you know, more bootstrap business. I'm like, what questions would I want to ask him while I'm trying to build my wealth while building my company? Like, it's just kind of easy. All of us are pretty scrappy sales, product, marketing, but like hiring systems, operations, we're getting more and more people who are good at it, but I don't think that was a lot of people's natural sweet spot. So right. I kind of live on both sides of the coin where I'm learning it, but also trying to find resources and and bring those into the group. And there's a lot of people who are further ahead than me. So like, you know, three of our potential hires for some contract work as we scale to the next stage are actual members. And, you know, we've had to develop a rule that we pay our members their cost for their goods or services, because we could just trade all day. And it, at the beginning we were, and it got really messy. Like our lawyer is in the group, our accountant is in the group and they own their firms. And our market, like we've had to become very clear with that. And yep. to your question of scale, it's really when we can attend and we've got installed systems and values that can run so that we can come. I want to build more stuff with people in the group. And so scale for us now is like a pivot from event business to membership business to essentially a sustainable community that I can make cool things come out of, you know, investments and projects and things like that. It's great. I'm curious, you hear the, you know, the, the Harvard business school version of, oh yeah, we're just going to grow 35% year on year and we'll go public in five years. We'll be on the cover of fill in, fill in what magazine you want. The reality is usually quite different. I've, you, you and I both done it. I'm curious, the biggest setback or, you know, like head knocker where you said, oh, can't believe we did that. What it cost you in terms of either a delay or it could be a financial and how it helped you eventually scale. Cause you say, boy, that was actually the greatest tuition I could have paid. It just, you know, as, as I call it, it's the unintended gift of a dirt sandwich. You, you, you did do a dirt sandwich deal and then you go, it turned out great, but yeah, what a bonehead move when I did it. Did you have an episode like that? Oh yeah, I could I could probably write a, a giant large book on that and I was just like going, yeah yeah I was just going into things immediately of like thoughts and it, it and I do agree they're usually the best lessons when they have some pain behind them that help you or a big check yeah either one yeah yeah and I've done both the thing I like to say is like the reason we didn't have a business plan when we started and I think we have something unique that is actually a little hard to describe compared to masterminds and things that are out there. 
is we didn't do that kind of Harvard thing. Here's our business plan. Here's how we're going to grow. Here's what we're going to do. Like we sort of were like, let's build something that has culture and is really great first. And then let's see if we can build a model around it, which, you know, was very costly way to go about it. You can say that's a bass backwards way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. But we had the privilege of doing, I, because we had cash flow from other businesses and we didn't know this is something we wanted to do. It was more, it was a chain of circumstances that stacked. But to answer your question, I would say like hiring is probably the biggest thing that I've had lessons with is like, you have a bad install in your organization. That's not the right seat, the right fit. They don't have the capacity to do it. Like the whole checklist you should be going through and you just try to force that person to work out. That is the most costly, you know, mistake is the underlying mistake that you hire people that you love or you hire people that are just like you or, or what's the, what's the hidden piece where you, you say what in retrospect, I should have never hired this person. Cause I already do that job. I don't need another me. Yeah. So that's a great question. Like my current assistant, this is his last day. And I have someone who is the exact opposite, you know, character. I hired someone who was like, Oh sweet. You can answer emails like me, like you're a cool fit, but also, equally disorganized and creative like me unless, you know, whatever. So that's, that's a a disaster. Yeah. Yeah. So, but we know we had fun talking on the phone and being somewhat productive, but not that productive. Right. Right. Um, So I think that's like kind of an obvious one. You need the puzzle pieces to fit. The bigger lesson we've learned is like not moving fast on people. We just find we enjoy and they're a referral from a friend or they're a close thing like go through the process get a if it's a really key thing like get a recruiter pay the price because the downside is is not worth it and look take your time and don't be in a rush for that you know that's been really huge while we grow the business because they have to there's so many things that have to work out and it takes a while to integrate them as far as like costly mistakes i still don't exactly know if this would ever happen again but when covid hit you know, we are in the live event business as one of our main, you know, items. And there was like a box we should have checked that I think was $120 part of our policy for communicable diseases and things like that. We, in the course of about a day, lost about $2 million in event deposits. Oh, because everybody just said, I ain't going because there's a pandemic? Oh, no, that was the second tranche of, of cash. This was deposits we had paid for future events that we had insurance oh, on I and see. they had to cancel all their events. So they're obviously not rushing to send you your deposits back. They're in the hundreds of thousands across many events. And, you know, if had we checked that box, maybe insurance would have covered. I still kind of feel like it might not have. The most interesting lessons we got out of it is we had our first event that was going to get canceled was in Italy where COVID was started first and things were getting canceled. So we were kind of ahead of it. There were still people in the States like, what is this? Isn't real, blah, blah. And we're like, the worst thing that could happen is when we cancel this, then we have to cancel another, then we have to cancel another. And because we're a membership organization now, rather than just an events business, we sent the probably two months before you got those flood of emails from every CEO of every company saying, here's our response. We, our, our email actually got read and it was a very intense approach we took because we didn't want a bunch of people saying they wanted refunds. We wanted to go, holy shit, you handled this like long-term thinkers. So he said, you won't be charged anything for the rest of the year 
you didn't start this thing. We're going to pivot to like working on the value we can have over this year and, and an account that it comes back. The short-term pain was immense. You know, luckily the PPP and the EIDL and all those things came and I actually ended up starting two side businesses with my partner at the time to keep payroll going, doing affiliate marketing stuff and whatever. But now that it's sort of passed, our brand equity and goodwill that we have with our customers has paid off like in ways where now I can send messages like, I just trust you, sign us up for the thing, like do this. And so that is in our core values for like how we run the companies. Like we call it lose to win is like sometimes there's short-term losses for long-term wins. So I still think we did the right thing, but it, it was a an intense pain and had to be checked that $120 box, you know, maybe, you know, have $2 million more now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's amazing how, I mean, who had that kind of foresight? Cause it was, you know, we, we had never seen that. So. Yeah. So I think that's the thing to always know now is going into 2019 and we were on fire and we were making very like big, confident decisions. Like, hey, there's nothing that can stop us. We're, you know, the unstoppable machine. We had hit our peak thing and then it just came to a halt. So now as we're making bigger plans and building an actual model and, and doing it, we're always like, well, what about if this, like we're adding a little bit of the, the what if. We were a little too cocky and confident and we, you know, paid the price for it. Yeah, it's funny. Scenario building is a real thing. And it's not that hard. It's actually kind of fun, but... Yeah, so now we're actually been doing the Disney model, the dreamer, realist, critic, where like we have, we meet on something and we do, let's do the dreamer version. Everything works out fairy tale. Now the critic version and the realist version and kind of like goes yeah. it that way. No, that's great. That's great. Obviously you've had a up and down thing because COVID was, you know, right at the, when you were starting to peak. Was there an inflection point where suddenly you said, gee, we got this thing. I mean, we got the secret sauce and this thing's really taken off. Yeah, I mean... It, it was when we kind of pivoted to creating the membership because like we were hosting events and we were not charging a small amount for them and everybody just kept coming back. Like we didn't need to go find new people. Right. Like that was cool. You know, one of our other things is we don't drink our own Kool-Aid. So in my mind, I always try to act like everything is broken and needs to be better. And, and that's a very important piece, but it was just the referrals that we were getting from people. Like we've never really done any marketing and it's had steady growth year over year. And it's just purely because people like this product and it is not for everyone. Like some people do want the more, they feel more comfortable in that school environment, their earlier stage, or they're in a bigger business that's got corporate stuff going on. Right. For like the, the founder who wants to be around other peers who feel they're, pain their wins and just get it it's hard like in your community day to day to have those interactions sometimes and so like i always say they come in for the logical reason to learn some strategies or make some connections but they totally stay for an emotional one where they're like oh that was like the best two-hour conversation because we were finishing each other's sentences and oh now i can tell my wife or husband this or whatever like that is really where i saw the power of it i'm curious I've always found it in my career is that it's very difficult to be publicly ambitious because society won't have it. I couldn't go to my church and over coffee after church say, I'm thinking of doing this because it was socially not okay. Or I couldn't go to a dinner party 
and find people that, because it was more, they wanted to knock you down and say, oh, that guy thinks he's all that. You just go, no, no, no. What? And, and my thinking was always, what if? What if we could do this? It, it's very difficult to find a community. Is that the community that, of Baby Bathwater? Where, where if, if you and I got together and you said, I want to do this, and I go, it's oh, amazing. How can I help? That's always a fun conversation. I would say that's a huge part of it, both on the ambitions and on like the weird interpersonal stuff yeah. that other people might not understand of like, I'm the only one who's going to be the last one here if all these employees quit or, you know, things like that. So it's like, it's almost on both sides that it's ununderstandable to feel the importance and the weight of it being a little lonely when you're, you've started something and people rely on you, but also the ambitions. Like, I mean, I had my entire family in town this weekend. And I said some stuff and I saw eye rolls, even though I'm host, you know, my mom even cried to me. I was like, I can't believe you were able to buy your brother and his family like tickets out here and we're getting right on the boat and do all these things. I'm like, yeah, I had a vision. I, you know, worked at it. And then I'm like, I'm, and then I've mentioned how I like want to get a shared plane. And you're happy to do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, I want to get a shared plane with my friends because I like, taking kids through security and stuff is terrible and all these different things. And they're, I get the eye roll or I want to build a few more things, you know, some of it that I think you're precisely on when, what I noticed, especially at the last event, I was sitting on some conversations. It's also the surprise of what ambitions people have in a different lens. We've tried to curate a group that is very less straightforward. It's not just like, I want this business at this cash flow. It's like the re the deeper reasons why, like maybe they're really into their health. So they built a business in the space where all they had to do is geek out about that. And their time freedom was huge, or maybe they love growing teams and they built a business in that. But it was like, yeah. I found it was not only ambitious, but also like you felt they weren't full of it about their why that they were doing it where, like I mentioned earlier in my come up phase, I actually didn't care about my software companies or these book business. Like I was just trying to, my why was I wanted to ski and learn how to make money because I didn't want to get it. You were hustling so you could have a lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And now it's a little bit different. And I think that is like kind of the core thing that you feel a different conversation than like a biz dev guy who's been sent to an event to get someone to, you know, be a, a promoter for them or something like that. Yeah, it's great. It's great. I'm curious, how much does, how much does, risk or maybe risk tolerance come into this? Could you do this pragmatically or is it is it one size fits all and you better be a eight, nine or 10 on a risk profile out of 10? As like someone who'd be a good fit for the group? No, just for the game, the entrepreneurial game or the scaling game. I mean, or could you do it as a three or a four as a pragmatist or a critic or a realist? Yeah, I mean, I think you could do it. Your speed is just gonna be very different. Like. If I was actually qualifying people to be involved in our group, who I, I said are kind of the same, if they're in that three or four range, I'm probably thinking, oh man, they could bring something cool because they see the world in a different way, but yep. might not, they might become uncomfortable in a lot of the conversations of, oh, well, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? Or why don't you just figure it out? By the time you get that whole plan built, you know, that you're going to miss the boat. I think those are the, it might feel out of place. And, you know, so particularly the thing we built, I would never, I've, I've been on another podcast where they were teaching people models of building businesses. I wouldn't recommend the one that we're doing for this 
as a low risk one or a speedy one. It was for a different purpose. Yeah. We, you know, that's the one thing we, now that we're in scale or phase, what do me and my business partner owe each other? It's to be there when plans go wrong. Now we're building teams, but like, oh, couldn't have predicted that would happen. Now we need to be the ones who are comfortable. We took the risk. We need to fix it, pivot it, come up with a solution. That's really the main role now. Sure. So what do you optimize then to grow? Like, is there a, is there a metric or is there a KPI or is there a, in EOS language, you know, big rocks or, I mean, there's different language for this, but what do you optimize for and measure? Yeah. So it's funny, we're in discussion on a little bit of what those are right now, because they're, they all are a bit congruent, but the, the main one we're doing for is the retention of members. And then the growth is, is what we're doing right now. So they kind of go hand in hand. If we're delivering a really good product, the referrals go up. And so like it just compounds day in and day out when someone has, everyone has like 10 other friends in their life who are similar if they're walking this path. And we would double if every one of them sent us a referral tomorrow. They're, yeah, they're best buddy, best entrepreneurial buddy. Yeah. Yeah. And they want to do these trips with them and they'd want to be in the online group where they're like, oh my gosh, did you see that guy shared this thing today? Like they would want that. So like retention and growth is really where it's at. And at a higher ticket price, we're happy with retention, but we like to hold ourselves to a little bit higher number. And then growth, same deal. We're actually trying to figure out what that metric is because we're computing the COVID two years into it and trying to come up with something as a measuring stick there. And then, you know, the other piece I think is just satisfaction that people are getting out of the product. You know, we, we juggle with surveys because people tell you stuff they think about and they're in a certain mindset coming off of a, a value being given. And I want the truth. So we're trying, I have some people who are kind of like, insiders in the group who pass information back like, hey you could do i want to know what we could do better that they may not tell us and so yeah. every now and then when we get something like that we're putting that up as a big rock for us is like well that's really hard they want to be have more communication about the subject that we don't have any experts in like that how do we figure it out right. uh, yeah that's a fun problem to solve yeah i'm uh, i'm curious what what questions should i ask about say scale that i did not what question would you have asked yourself? I'd say in my past businesses that were more straightforward, it was like, you have to have a roadmap. Like you have to know the steps, you know, the steps are going to change. Like you talked about the Harvard answer versus the reality answer. Yeah. Like you need to put a map together so people can go with you down that path. But you also need to know that that map is a Google document, not a printed version. And it's going to change. In our current one, our, our really our skill issue, this is for anyone who has co-founders, is like we did a lot of the same stuff for a very long time. Our biggest thing we're running into, and it's healthy, but it's interesting, I, that's what I call my work wife, is me and him are trying to figure out how to get more out of our dividing and conquering and what are the things we need to do so that we're not doing the same stuff. Like we both recruited people. We both did sales, we both did marketing. We both, and now you've got, you know, an EOS, two visionaries, one integrator, five departments. We're sitting in some of the departments. Um, you know, the big question for us is what can you give up and what do you need to do in order to give that up? 
and you know move keep moving up the ladder and and what value you can bring it's really uncomfortable because like yeah, i know how to crush some of that stuff and we're a little bit precious about our product like any vendor we work with i'm always like i hate to say it like you probably don't want to work with us because we're way too precious about everything like we're not just gonna read it and go yeah that's good like we're gonna have feedback and you know I would disqualify us if I was you. <laughs> yeah, you, you wouldn't want to have to be your vendor. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, that's great. That's super helpful. That's super helpful. Well, Hollis, thank you for your wisdom and insight. Very different scaling scaling model, which is fabulous because that's our listeners love that. For our listeners, thanks for joining us again at Genius at Scale. Until we see you down the road, all the best. Thanks for joining us today. Are you ready to scale? If so, invest three minutes in our scalability index. It's simple, easy, and gives specific guidance. Find it at evokinggenius.com slash scale. All the best.